0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician.
1: Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr.
2: Marianne Ritchie. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achoo, sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let
1: your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor,
2: Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
1: And a good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome in to your radio doctor as we broadcast to you live on this Sunday here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. It is the first Sunday of April. National Autism Awareness Month began on Wednesday, April 1st. It ends on April 30th, and for all Christians today, uh, today represents uh, Palm Sunday. Dr. Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor, uh, starts with us right now. Dr. Marianne, a good morning to you.
3: Good morning to you, Joe, and thank you for that warm welcome to our listeners on this beautiful Palm Sunday, and we're looking forward to hearing from very special guests today. First, I'd like to mention that today is April 5th, and my father, Frank Ritchie, would be 104 years old today, and right now we could all use a little of his favorite formula. Just keep trying, then say your prayers and go to bed, because tomorrow will be a better day. Each of our guests today is also bringing a message of hope. We begin with an update about COVID-19 from our friend, Dr. Steve Allis, Director of Disease Control from the Philadelphia Department of Health. And then we mark April as Autism Awareness Month with two guests who are truly invested in making the world a more accepting place for those who have autism. Each is a leader in her own right, but together they are a force. You'll hear from Ms. Margaret Hondros. She and her husband Paul are the co-founders and co-chairs of the board of the Kenny Center for Autism Education and Support at St. Joseph's University, and Dr. Wendy Ross, Director of the Center for Autism and Neurodiversity at Jefferson. We begin with Dr. Steve Alice, a remarkable physician and public health expert, and even at this time of unprecedented challenge, he still finds time each week to join us, and for that we're extremely grateful. Steve, welcome.
2: Thank you, Marianne.
3: Tell us, where are we since last Sunday? What's happening in Philadelphia now, Steve?
2: So, a lot of aggressive planning and activities to prepare us for uh, many more cases of COVID 19 in Philadelphia have where that's where the big emphasis has been for all of us. And so, looking at what's happening in New York and other places that have experienced big increases in patients presenting to health care and more widespread transmission of COVID-19, we're bracing for that to come to Philadelphia in the coming weeks that are ahead.
3: Sure. And what might we expect in these coming weeks? Because it's hard to say.
2: Yeah, so what I can say is our local case counts are increasing, and we do have some uh, a few dozen deaths that our commissioner reports out every day, and we are also seeing increased uh, nursing home and congregate setting outbreaks. And so uh, in those settings, uh, the virus seems to spread quite quickly, like what was observed on that Diamond Princess cruise ship that was uh, stationed off of Japan a number of weeks ago. And so with the local activity that we're seeing and the increases that we're seeing right now, we're really on the lookout to to try to uh, prepare the clinical community to help as many people as we can should they uh, present with COVID-19 and start to require healthcare resources here in Philly.
3: Sure. Well, I will say it's remarkable. Every time I talk to you, I feel better because I know you have experience and we've had Dr. Ed Jasper on, who's COVID task force uh leader for the region with you. And it's just remarkable to hear the planning that has been going on and continues to go on. Um, How do we best utilize testing, Steve? That's always a good question, I think
2: testing is something that's important, and so rather, we know that COVID-19 is here in Philadelphia. It's definitely widespread in places like New York and northern New Jersey, and so the value of uh, individuals who have mild symptoms to get a test isn't really necessary anymore, I'd say, for most people, and so the reason is, is because influenza, other viral uh, respiratory pathogens that we typically see in winter really have gone away to significant levels, so now for folks that present with fever, cough, symptoms, of this disease, it's more likely that that's what it is. And so for people that are younger, healthier, don't have underlying health conditions and have mild illness, knowing that you actually have COVID-19 or not through a definitive diagnostic test really isn't necessary anymore. I think it's fair to say that if it it, uh, looks like this disease, it probably is. And even if it isn't, if it's some other respiratory virus, all the control strategies that are recommended to control the spread to other people are the same and yeah. what to look for in terms of worsening symptoms, you know, certainly high fever, prolonged fever, signs of dehydration. Those are things where people should seek care. But we're really telling people that have mild symptoms that would just be managed at home with over-the-counter medications typically that they should do that, that they should stay home and watch their symptoms. And if they don't require, if they don't uh, have uh, moderate to severe symptoms and, uh, you know, just, uh, monitor themselves at home and and it should pass in a couple of days and that's what happens for most young healthy people
3: yeah and I think that's such an important message not to be tested unless you have to because as you mentioned it's not going to change the management and what people need to hear also is that um, up to at least 30 percent of the time I I'm you're the expert but uh, these tests can be negative falsely negative so a patient has symptoms and they get a blood test that says, you're, you're good, it's not COVID, but in a lot of cases, it is. Um, and I think that people will be reassured that the test, as you mentioned, every week, it really doesn't change what we do for you.
2: Right. So we're relying on, the, on a nasal test more than a blood test. It's the, to a detect virus in the nasal passageway and even a negative test sometimes. You're right. Um, doesn't mean that virus isn't there. It was just low levels and and maybe it wasn't picked up on that particular test. But I will say that testing is important still for a handful of people. And I would say in an outbreak setting, a congregate setting like a nursing home, we need to know who has the disease and who doesn't. Healthcare workers are a good example of people we wanna know that it is in fact COVID-19 or not, because we might exclude them from working or have them uh, go into some sort of heightened kind of monitoring for symptoms. Asymptomatic healthcare workers that have been exposed, how long uh, after their exposure, uh, we might test them to see if they've gone long enough so that they won't become infected and are therefore safe to return back to work, things like that.
1: Dr. Steve Alice is joining Dr. Marianne on your radio doctor as we come to you live on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, Dr. Alice, if you don't mind me asking you uh, just a short question to get an opinion uh, from you, there's a lot of uh, conversation on the news over the last couple of days that the next couple of weeks in front of us, Uh, are going to be very tough, and I don't know how to define the word tough in the context of it being presented that way, but um, shed some thought for us, uh, for the listening audience.
2: Yes, and so uh, this is a tough message, but I think people have to realize that we are expecting more cases of this disease, and we're doing a lot of work here to try to contain it as best we can. But when you look at what's happened in New York City so nearby to us, we really have to prepare for something like that that's coming this way as well. How bad it will be, we can't say for sure, but there will, uh, with very high certainty, be Many more cases that are here in Philadelphia, I would say, in two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, uh, and more people being admitted to our hospitals requiring uh, acute care, and there will be more deaths in our city. And so, unfortunately, even though we have a lot of extensive social distancing activities in place, um, we do expect that there's going to be harder times because there will just be more disease. The social distancing will have to continue for a number of weeks, and uh, there will be more deaths in our city.
3: Yeah. And Steve, too, I think as we reemphasize that you don't always have to be tested if it doesn't change your management, it's also a question of not exposing the healthcare workers to be doing the swabs because then they're wearing uh, PPEs. And um, do you think that eventually we'll be doing the, the self-monitored uh, or the self-swabs uh, that people will be doing their own specimens or? Mm-hmm.
2: Again, I think that it comes down to, you know, whether or not people need to have the tests. And sure. probably, sure. you know, moving more into a conservation strategy now with test mm-hmm. kits, with personal protective equipment to really use that primarily where it's most needed, most useful, protect our healthcare workers and to test people where the result changes what you do. And so that, that, those are important messages for us to kind of understand now is that it's really about conserving resources, getting smart to think about two weeks, six weeks from now, the demand that we might expect to see on all these things. And we want to preserve those things now so that we have as much as we can. Then. Well,
3: I give the community high marks because you know, social distancing. It took a while for people to get into the rhythm of it, but now we're seeing people be so respectful. It's really wonderful when you walk into well, not that I do, but uh was it maybe ten days ago that Walmart and supermarkets were starting to put the plexiglass up, which is such a great, pretty easy, quick way to when you see them all go up, to protect the cashier and the, the purchase the, the buyer uh, just small stuff like that makes such a big difference. And as you mentioned, you know the people are sitting apart on the trains when they have to use them. I mean, people are really, I think, respecting the guidelines and trying their best. After the first two weeks, they hear, oh, another 30 days. They're really, really making the effort, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, I would. And I, I would look at that, what you just observed, as a message of hope here. And so one of the things that we in public health really hope happens is this experience that we're all going through, not just here in Philly, really around the world, hopefully will teach us how to be better with respect to not just taking care of our own health and our our own health care but respecting that we affect the health of other people in our community and that we should all really be taking steps on a regular basis to think about staying home when you're sick our own transmission to other people sneezing coughing out in public you know getting a vaccine those are all very important things that i hope this uh, pandemic will teach us to all be better at moving forward.
3: Right from the city of brotherly love. And Philadelphia is so fortunate that you are a key member in this experienced task force, Steve. And this COVID-19 has a mind of its own. But with your work with the team, you study the data, keep refining the plan, combined with your repetition of this message, it's going to save thousands of people. So thank you, Steve. Stay well. And please keep us posted.
2: All right. Thank you, Marianne. Appreciate thank it. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Really,
1: really great stuff from Dr. Steve Allis from the Philadelphia Department of Health and Dr. Marianne. As we go to our first commercial break here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, uh, I want to thank Steve uh, on behalf of the listeners. Um, Here's a man who is um, working on very little sleep every day, uh, and yet he makes uh, time to come on to the program and provide in real time uh, live updates. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Dr. Steve Alice, for joining Dr. Mary Ann on your radio doctor. We'll get to a commercial break here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. The show rolls on. Back in a moment. And we're back here live on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie as we come to you uh, on a Sunday morning. Doc, all yours.
3: Thanks again, Joe. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Ms. Margaret Hundroos. I met with Margaret some weeks ago when I heard, and more importantly, I felt the beautiful story of a woman who loves her children, and when she noticed certain changes in her 2-year-old son's development, she combined her problem-solving skills as a certified public accountant with her basic instincts as a mother and began her quest to find advice and form a plan. Margaret Hondros and her husband Paul are the co-founders and the co-chairs of the board of the Kinney Center for Autism Education and Support at Saint Joseph's University. Margaret, welcome.
0: Thank you, Marianne. Good morning. Thank you for having me.
3: Oh, it's our pleasure. Margaret, take us back to two thousand and four when you started to notice some changes that were very obvious to you.
0: Sure. So we. Um, I, my husband and I are the parents of a of a son who was born in 2001 and by all accounts uh, was developing, you know, what people would consider normally hitting the milestones along the first 12 months of uh, his development. But around uh, 12 to 18 months when he really started, you know, when you expect children to be, uh, saying those first words and uh, doing those those hits of you know making eye contact and and really being in, starting to engage with you, um, my husband and I really started to notice that we just felt some things weren't um, weren't going as we thought they should. We have an older daughter who is about uh, three years older than our son and. You know, the comparison of her development to his really started to trigger some some questions in our thinking. So he stopped uh, saying some words that he had been saying. Hmm. Uh, he made very little eye contact with us. Um, very you know very little interest in playing with others. So there were a lot of things that were happening that you know my husband and I would cons- would compare with each other and, and just felt. Things just weren't clicking, you know they weren't they, something wasn't going right. Um, I had a number of discussions with our pediatrician who you know was the the person who I first brought all these uh, concerns up with, and you know his his recommendation was let's keep an eye on it, let's see how you know how things go in the next well visit, and you know we it was kind of like let's just see how this goes along. But really around, I'd say, two years, um, you know, the mother's intuition really started to kick in, and I I knew just something wasn't developing um, really the right, what should be, what was expected. So the most difficult thing in this journey was that finding someone at that time, so this was now in 2004, who could help me find out and figure out what was going on with our son. And how do you go about even starting that process? Yeah, so, um, you know, you you talk to a lot of people. You ask a lot of, you know, I'm very, you know, connected, a connecting person. And people recommended, you know, obviously we have all these great medical institutions in the city, check with CHOP, check with uh, Drexel, Jefferson. And, you know, but the problem was at that time, this is when the numbers really started to rise. So, Mm -hmm. Um, in 2002, the autism prevalence was around 1 in 150 children. Um, now, today, it's it's the CDC uh, states it as 1 in 59. So it was during this period of time when those numbers were really starting to rise. And so um, when I reached out to uh, CHOP and to our local intermediate unit, there were very long waiting lists to get... Um, any kind of um, an assessment or any kind of a, a testing done. So it, it was, you know, it was very frustrating. It was very difficult. So finally, uh, I was able to find, through a friend, a, uh, a neurodevelopmental pediatrician who um, came to our home, observed my son. Um, at the time, it was the, the CARS test, which was the Childhood Autism Rating Scale test that was performed. And, you know, just from observing him in his natural setting, um, you know, with his interaction with me and his sister, you know, she, uh, that was when she said, you know, this is what's going on. Um, at the time, she said it was a PDD-NOS diagnosis, which is pervasive development disorder, not otherwise specified, mm-hmm. which was on the autism spectrum. Today it would be an autism. They don't use that diagnosis anymore. It would be an autism diagnosis. But he also he had a dual diagnosis of autism and ADHD.
3: Which, as I'm reading more and, and speaking to you and Dr. Wendy Ross, is not um, so unusual that it's linked or identified uh, with another condition. I, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the, the numbers. I wonder if, and, and this is a question I think many people have, and which you probably can't answer, but are the numbers... Increasing because the condition is more common, or are we better at recognizing it? It's almost like when people talk about COVID, we don't know unless we test everybody in Pennsylvania and say, out of, you know, what, how many, a million people, 900,000 people have it, or if we only test 200,000, how do we know? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Do you think that the numbers are growing because we're keener uh in the pediatrician's office and parents? What would you say about that?
0: Well, I would say I think it's 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 both, right? It's mm-hmm. um, you know the a the American Academy of Pediatrics now you know recommends that pediatricians screen at at the 18 month checkup, at the two year checkup, and you know if any kinds of um, uh, you know things pop up at those checkups, and they retest again at 36 months. So the screening you know is much better now so i'm sure there's there's cases that are being more identified more even more quickly identified
2: right.
0: and also um, but i you know it's 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 the really double question um or is there just something going on that's, sure. that's causing more yeah. of these cases to to be happening and uh you know that's where all the researchers are very focused you know sure. um What what is what is causing you know why do we have all this prevalence of autism
3: and and knowing that will help us advise uh, expectant mothers or or new mothers and fathers what to look for because we know with almost every medical condition early identification early treatment providing services has to be directly linked to improved outcomes
0: truly I mean that that you know that is really the most important thing. Um, for you know, parents of a of a newly diagnosed child to know that you know the the sooner you can get started with treatment and services, uh, you know the the st- you know all the statistics show that it's directly linked right. to the best outcomes for your child.
3: So tell us how you and your husband Paul planted this seed. Paul's a graduate of St. Joe's University, former basketball star, mm-hmm. and he saw. I mean, it's, St. Joe's University is known for its strong education special ed academic departments and the light went on in his head and your head and you had this vision to create this center and tell us about the twofold mission
0: sure so you know when um when my son was diagnosed being a very you know proactive hands-on person I you know said, okay so what do I do now you know I Got this information, and really, you know, the three areas that um, she said: speech, you know, you have speech therapy, behavioral therapy, and some kind of a school setting for social interaction. So, in in trying to find those services, it was very difficult. Um, You know, at the time, there weren't a lot of behavioral therapists working in this field, and there, you know, the the schools were really weren't in place yet. So. My husband watched me trying to find this these these services that we needed, and you know I really I was you know I was being the CPA. I mean I was going to make this happen thirty to forty right. hours of behavioral therapy a week. So he again, as you mentioned, you know he he was on the board of trustees at the time at, at the Saint Joseph's University, and you know he said there has to be more individuals who understand autism and who are educated and trained in this field to start working with all these. These cases that are being identified and you know being and these children who need the services, so you know it took a few years, but we we started working with a number of um of the the teachers of uh, St. Joe's and the administrators and the the basically the vision of the Kinney Center was born, and the idea being you know a twofold mission to educate and train the autism professionals of tomorrow. So those individuals, you know, go out and work with all these, these people who are identified with autism and also have a center where we could provide uh, services and support for the individuals and families, you know, affected by autism today.
3: What a beautiful concept. We're here today with Ms. Margaret Hondros. She and her husband, Paul Hondros, are the co-founders and co-chairs of the board of the Kinney Center for Autism Education and Support at Hawk Hill St. Joe's University. So your dream started when, when you first conceived of it, but the Kinney Center then opened in 2009. Tell me, how did you choose the name?
0: Uh, the Kinney Center is named after Paul's mother, uh, Dorothy oh. Kinney. Um, it's a family name, and uh, we just wanted to pay uh, tribute to her and, and name the center after Dorothy oh. Kinney. Beautiful. And
3: for people who want to get information, I'm going to repeat this a few times uh, before we finish. They would visit kinneyautism.sju.edu, and then they could look into scholars, meaning those who uh, you'll tell us more about the different uh, facets of the program, but Kinney, K-I-N-N-E-Y Edu. Well, that's a beautiful thought that he's honoring um, his mother and your mother-in-law. So tell us about the different uh, participants in the program. Tell
0: us about the Kinney Scholars for starters? Sure. So the whole idea behind uh, you know the, the, the first part of the mission, the training part of the mission, was to attract students to this field, to, to learn and to get, be educated and trained in this field. So since 2009, so we had our 10-year anniversary this past fall. Oh, um, wonderful! We, yes, we're very excited about it. We were planning lots of things this spring to uh, to celebrate that 10-year, and uh, we we put it on hold a little bit in light of everything going on. But uh, more to come. But in so over the those 10 years, we've had over 400 St. Joseph students, and we call them scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, who have trained and worked in the Kinney Center. And then they've gone on and graduated and gone out into the workplace um, or gone on to graduate school with this incredibly strong knowledge and understanding of autism. So if a student at St. Joseph's University um, opts to become a scholar, and we not only have uh, education, special education um, majors, autism study majors working as scholars in our kinney center we have students from all the academic areas of the university it's really become embedded in the fabric of um, st joseph's university now yeah. part of the whole jesuit mission and if those students you know if we have a student that works in the center for the whole four years as a scholar they'll receive over two thousand hours of training in this field and not only do they receive that training but they work one-on-one with our indi- the individuals who come for the services. So, And our services are across the lifespan. So we have uh, young people who come for after-school youth social skills. We have a summer camp that we run for five weeks in the summer for um, individuals from ages two to ages 30. We have transition skill programs that we run. We have sports and recreation programs on the weekends. We have our college support program that we call Aspire. So it's a whole lifespan of services that we offer, and these scholars that work in the center and are also being trained in the autism field work one-on-one.
3: Yeah, Margaret, I want to remind our listeners, kinneyautism.sju.edu. We only have about a minute and a half left, and I'd like to ask two questions. Number one, during this time of COVID and being homebound, I'm sure, I mean, uh, all of us uh, are a little bit more anxious, but for those with on the spectrum, that structure, structure and predictability that usually help to stabilize um, are much different, and it has to be harder for both those with autism and those who help to care for them.
0: Yes, um, very difficult. I mean, social isolation, the lack of a schedule... And the The disruption in just the daily routine, not knowing what to expect, all of those things which which are things that we're all struggling with, but they really affect individuals with autism i mean those are very these are very challenging times. So but you're adding us, some but, programs
3: now. I didn't mean to interrupt. I want to let you yeah, get it in there. Yeah, but you're, you've added some additional online yeah. programs, Zoom yes, sessions. We have oh, a oh, number
0: oh. of um, video programs that we're releasing every day. Again, the thekennyautism.sju.edu with the, you know all kinds of social skill lessons, activities for the family. Um, we're doing Zoom sessions with our clients, both in the day in our day program as well as our our college students who you know are. Are the students on the spectrum who get support from the center? You know, they're trying to, you know, facilitate their college pr- and get through their college program here in a virtual environment. So we're doing Zoom sessions with them. We're doing Zoom sessions with um, their mentors. We're looking at a number of things going forward. Again, using that Zoom platform where we can connect. Just that connectivity is is really providing families and individuals so much help and support.
3: Well, the other thing, the other major beautiful accomplishment is that you're now looking towards the 18-year-olds that are going out into the trying to go to college. And, I, I mean, you speak so beautifully about your family and your daughter, Brown University, what a great school. But you really beam when you talk about your son headed to college next fall. So that's one question. But the other is you've already accomplished so much at Kinney Center what does the future hold? So tell us about how you're preparing those to go to college and the workforce and um, the future that the Kinney Center holds.
0: Sure. And that, that really is where we're focused because, you know, Mary, the, the, the numbers are just staggering. So, you know, there's, the you know, on average, seven, 70,000 teens that are aging out of you know, their school-based services every year on the autism spectrum. So, you know, that can be anywhere from 18 to 21. But over 10 years, you know, we're talking about 700,000 to a million individuals who, you know, are going to lose that that school support that they're so used to and so has been sort of their lifeline. So, you know, we know that they're going – you know, these adults – are going to need more help and more support, and a lot of those, um, a lot of those things that we're looking at are these these bridge programs where you know maybe not every individual is going to be able to go on to additional schooling and, and whether it's vocational or high sc- or uh, college or some kind of right. additional program, but we're we're looking at these programs to help them l- figure out where what they can do and where they can go. And we're also developing work readiness and training sure. programs. Um, we're looking at expanded academic offerings for our students. You know, the, the students who are studying in the autism right. field and so there's they so can also continue right. their work. But there's, but there's so much happening in the Greater Philadelphia area, and I'd be remiss not to mention that that the Greater Philadelphia area is truly a leader mm-hmm. in the field of autism. I mean, yes. with you know um, all with Chop and their Center for Autism Research. With the fabulous uh, our fabulous Eagles and the Eagles Autism Foundation, right. and the money they're raising to go to research, and so many companies now are starting to begin neurodiverse um, hiring programs, and you know where they know that they want to start hiring these individual individuals right. with autism into their workforce. So there's a lot of good things coming and happening, and and Kenny's right there in the middle of getting getting things moved forward.
3: Right. Well, Margaret, I have to say goodbye, but thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Uh, we know our listeners can visit kinneyautism.sju.edu. Margaret and Paul Hondros have had this dream that every puzzle piece, the symbol for autism awareness, every puzzle piece will find the unique spot where he or she fits into the big puzzle. Thank you. God bless.
0: Continue your beautiful work. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you for having me. Of course.
1: And back here on a Sunday, we are live on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie. Doc, all yours.
3: And thank you, Joe. Now we welcome Dr. Wendy Ross. Dr. Ross is the director of the Center for Autism and Neurodiversity at Jefferson. She's a developmental pediatrician who counsels those with autism and their families, but her big dream is to change the way the entire community, in fact the world, Perceives autism, and she's working to develop programs that will make the world more accessible to those on the spectrum. Welcome, Dr. Wendy Ross.
4: Hi, Mary Ann. Thanks for having me.
3: Of course. Wendy, I have to ask, how did you first connect with Margaret Hondros? Why don't you tell the audience about the Jefferson partnership with St. Joe's University's Kinney Center?
4: Sure. Well, even before I had joined Jefferson, I was running inclusion programs with all the major sports teams in the city. So, and we still continue those programs at Jefferson now. So, we bring individuals affected by autism and their families, and we bring them supported by clinical staff. So, I um, met Margaret and teamed up with the Kinney Center both to recruit families and volunteers from their scholars to support gotcha. that program.
3: So, in this short time that we have, I have three main questions for you. Um, how is autism defined? That would be the first question, and then talk about the challenges with living in the community, and then finally, what makes Jefferson stand out? I know a lot.
4: <laughs> yeah, so autism affects three areas of development, communication, social skills, and behavior, and how that looks can be very different in an individual. On one hand, you might have somebody with no language that is rocking and no has no eye contact, or you might have someone who's particular area is a focus in one topic who does not make great eye contact and cannot have a conversation but can still you know hold a job and go to school and function in some ways quite typically
3: right and i guess as margaret was explaining as a mother that re- that it requires you observing the child or or the even an older person i i think it's interesting um, some of the statistics that you mentioned when we conversed is that what is the most common age? Um, because I know some people are diagnosed at a later point in life.
4: Yes. So the new CDC numbers for autism are 1 in 54 in 8-year-olds. And because the American Academy of Pediatrics is screening children at 18 and 24 months, we are catching kids younger. But there are a certain subset of individuals that, are picked up much later, even in adulthood, when their children are diagnosed. Right. This tends maybe to happen, a parent oh, – sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, this have, tends to happen most often with women. So even though the numbers say that this is much more common in boys than in girls, those numbers are coming from 8-year-olds, and we're finding more and more that their criteria and the presentation for women can happen later in life.
3: Sure. So maybe a mother has her child at the pediatrician, and when they hear the actual description, uh, they say, hmm, I've, I've seen that in myself.
4: Absolutely. And they begin to realize that a lot of the struggles they're having have a name. And with that name can come some support and solutions for them as well as
3: their child. So, so tell us about the mission in general, Wendy, of what you're trying to do.
4: Right. So the mission of Jefferson is really different than a lot of Universities and autism centers, we really aim to be a thought leader and creative force behind solutions that are driven by those on the spectrum but are also interdisciplinary. So we take into account um, the perspective of occupational therapists, speech and language pathologists. We have a whole design center where we're working on physical design at Jefferson of the built environment. And we really want to enable individuals with autism and other neurodiverse conditions to participate more fully in the world.
3: Sure, in the community. And I, and I love your analogy that you say we don't have a ramp. If uh, people who with the American Disabilities Act, which has been fantastic and more room to grow there, but if a person uses a wheelchair, they have a ramp. But that ends up helping other people too, like people making deliveries or elderly people. Tell us how that analogy works in your work.
4: Right. Absolutely. I mean, in July, the American with Disabilities Act is going to be 30 years old, which is amazing. And there right. are specific guidelines for physical disabilities, but there are no guidelines for autism. And our goal at Jefferson is to help create those. And when we think of that, a ramp was created for wheelchairs but does benefit people with walkers, strollers, delivery people. Crutches. A lot of this. Sh- oh, sure. Oh. Mm-hmm. Sorry, a lot of the strategies that we use for those on the spectrum do benefit other people, and sometimes it's just about reminding us of the care that some people really need but everybody deserves.
3: Yes. So what sets Jefferson apart? In my mind, you're striving to find programs and test them with the help of those on the spectrum, your patients and their families, because you want to set up a best pra- with those best practice models, you want to set up a template that other centers can follow.
4: Yes. So our goal is not to have one or two programs or to just do research. We are creating a model for inclusion that we are collecting evidence for that we hope will create and drive policy for those guidelines for ADA and also internationally. And some of the things that set us apart are that we involve people with autism and other related conditions at all levels of our program. We ask them first what matters to them, and we then down the road include them as leaders. They are neither patients nor clients. They are people. Right. Um, We we are multidisciplinary. We have access to all kinds of therapists, but also the built environment. And our goal is really – to work with individuals affected, but also to educate the community and provide accommodations and strategies to create those ramps. We want to measure the outcomes to create a best practice that can be delivered everywhere with fidelity so that other people can access the things that they need and have opportunities.
3: So you're going to be weaving this training, really, uh, into the medical student program. You're even training the Jefferson Security. It's just fantastic that everybody will be more aware and more conscious and more accommodating.
4: Unbelievable. You know, I am so excited to be at Jefferson because the program that we're doing really aligns with Jefferson's values. You know, we're putting people first, we're doing the right thing, and we're being bold and courageous not just to encourage those things in the people that we serve, but in sort of meeting their needs. Our goal is really to create opportunity. Yes, Wendy,
3: I'm sorry to interrupt. There's so much good information. How would our listeners learn about your work? What website would they visit?
4: Yes, so they can go to the Jefferson's website and look at the Center for Autism and Neurodiversity. So Um, that would be jefferson.edu or... Yes.
3: Okay. Uh, and I'm sorry, And about 30 seconds, tell us about the work you're doing with City Hall and sports teams and airlines. It's just incredible.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, I want to mention first that, you know, we really want to internalize this program at Jefferson. So in a few weeks, we will have an educational module for every single employee across the enterprise to Wonderful. be learning something about autism. We are going practice by practice, inpatient and outpatient, to make Healthcare accessible, and we are also applying this to create accessible programs across the community. At City Hall, we're applying this model. We continue to do this with the sports teams. So we are doing this both in um, and out of healthcare, and we're really excited to have an early acceptance program with the yeah. That's Center. What I wanted to say mm-hmm. absolutely, where we're bringing their medical students, their pre-medical students that are interested in autism that have that background to help change the culture of medicine from the very beginning. Well, your the future,
3: work is fantastic, Wendy. I, I have to cut you off. I'm so sorry. But especially okay. since you're teamed up with a major university with educational programs for the students and for those on the spectrum and their families, it is just brilliant, and we wish you well. And I'm going to have to have you back on because you have so many good things to say. And I want to thank you for taking your time on a Sunday morning, especially with all you're trying to do to help those on the spectrum and their families and to make us all more aware and more accepting. Thank you, Dr. Wendy Ross, who is the director of the Center for Autism and Neurodiversity at Jefferson Health.
1: This this is your radio doctor on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And we're back here live on a Sunday morning on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, If you missed any of today's live program, you can go to Radio.com. It's Radio On Demand. Uh, The show will be up there. You can listen to the show. You can rewind the show, uh, and you can listen to the great guest and the great conversation uh, from Dr. Marianne and her guest today, Doc.
3: Thank you, Joe. I'd like to end the show today with... COVID vocabulary, you might say, terms you hear in the news that might sound a bit confusing. COVID-19 stands for CO, CO for corona, VI, virus, D for disease, and it was identified in 2019, COVID-19. It's caused by the virus SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS-2. It's a novel coronavirus because it's new, never seen before in humans. It's not the coronavirus that causes the common cold or SARS in 2002. This is called SARS number two. Quarantine versus isolate. If you've been exposed but you're not sick, you quarantine for 14 days. If you do have symptoms, you isolate yourself. Same plan, different titles, but when you hear it, you'll understand. Now we do have tests and even the new one, point of care test means you'll have answers within five to 13 minutes. It's faster, but know that any of the swab tests that are being done, 30% of the time you can have COVID with a falsely negative test. This means you have COVID, but the test says you don't. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to establish numbers and statistics. The other test you hear about looks for your immune response. That's a blood test. You hear terms antigen, antibodies. An antigen is a molecule that stimulates your immune system. An antigen is a bad guy, a virus, a bacterium. Antibody is a soldier, and you make an army of white blood cells that come to the rescue to get rid of the bad guy. Antigen, bad guy, antibodies, soldiers. Two thoughts. If a person has no symptoms but their blood test shows antibodies, it means they've been exposed to the virus and now they're immune. So they can go back to work that's where that will help if a patient has been sick and they recover they convalesce a convalescent home we take their antibodies their soldiers infuse them by iv into a very sick patient and it's showing some promise this convalescent plasma they talk about this plasma is a yellow liquid part of the blood that contains antibodies the convalescent plasma can be transferred to a sick patient Now, sometimes COVID begins with GI symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, and in some cases, we see virus in stool samples. We're not sure if it's contagious, but just in case, it's definitely another reason for super hand-washing. That's Nursery School 101. Wash your hands after you use the bathroom. Medications. It seems that hydroxychloroquine, generic for Plaquenil, would be a great therapy. But we have to be very careful about prescribing because of the possible side effects. Number one, it can cause a dangerous heart rhythm that can lead to sudden death. So before a patient takes it, they have to have a cardiogram, an EKG, to see if they're at risk. The other possible side effect, not so frequent, but there's a hereditary condition called G6PD deficiency. Some of these people are missing an enzyme, and the medication can cause a serious drop in their blood count. We see it in people of Asian and Mediterranean descent and up to 14% of African-Americans. The vaccine. It can take years of testing to create a vaccine, but what's really amazing is that Chinese scientists published a paper in January describing the genetic code of this virus. Scientists from Johnson & Johnson jumped on it. They took that information, and they started work on the vaccine immediately. In record-breaking time, they're hoping to start trials this fall and may have a vaccine as soon as early 2021. That would be a miracle. Flattening the curve. If we go about our business and don't separate and a large number of people get sick at once, the local hospital could be overwhelmed, short on beds, staff, masks, ventilators. The goal of social distancing is to have fewer people get sick at once and This is why uh, we're trying to, to encourage social distancing. It's critical for effective management. We hear social distancing. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can you be social from the distance? You can't get a handshake or a hug. But right now, if you really want to show your love for family, friends, and fellow citizens, especially the most vulnerable, the elderly, people with cancer, transplants, diabetes, heart or lung disease, please, practice social distancing. You know, 25% of people with COVID have no symptoms. You may feel fine, but you could be shedding the virus everywhere. Please stay home. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks tell us it's worked in Washington State, California, China, South Korea. This is not a country where you're forced by the police to stay in your house. You have freedom to make the right choice. It's not always easy. Kids get rammy, You might squabble with your partner, but think of healthcare workers, police and firefighters, security guards, delivery people, st- supermarket, bus drivers. They don't want to get sick. They don't want to bring COVID home to their families. And think of those without a paycheck who might still might have one after COVID leaves town. As of Friday, the CDC recommends we wear a cloth mask to cover your nose and mouth when you're in public. Initially, we thought the virus spread by coughing or sneezing. Now we know infected people can pass it by simply talking. It's not in place of separation, but addition to social distancing. Now, before I go, two requests. Starting next week, your radio doctor will have a segment called Your Real Crusader. Tell us about a special person on the front lines, maybe delivering food to those in need, bringing neighbors together with music on your street, or someone who's had COVID and got better. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.com, for details. We're all worried about family, friends, or ourselves getting sick or losing our jobs or business. We're asking you to hang your American flag in front of your home or business. This virus doesn't respect borders, age, race, gender, political party. We're in this together. This is Philadelphia, home of Rocky Balboa. We fight together. So hang those magnificent stars and stripes as a show of unity, and a sign of support for patients, families who have lost loved ones, or those selfless warriors entering the battlefield on a daily basis. They remind us that this is the USA, the land of the free, home of the brave. And as we enter this Holy Week leading to Easter and Passover, we ask God to bless us all and remember, your health is your wealth. Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a
2: Jacob Media Production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.